All right, today we are going to be talking about Jacob and Esau. And I'm hoping to spill the beans on some of the information, misinformation, and missed information that we find kind of in between the text whenever we start scrubbing some of the details of genealogies and ages. And we are doing this one today strictly on Genesis chapter 25, mostly for the reason of I'm trying to create a lot of these episodes to be smaller bite-sized pieces because not everybody has an hour to go long form on these. I mean, I have to sneak away for a little bit from my family just to have the opportunity to record, and sometimes I have to do it two or three times before I'm satisfied with the materials. So we're going to be taking a look strictly at 25. Perhaps we can do installments later on if interest prevails outside of my own brain. All right, so going forward, when it comes to the story of Jacob and Esau and so much of the narrative, there exists a depth to the story that seems to be unrecognized in many of the churches or congregations that I've even heard dare tackle the subject. When it comes to stories of characters and heroes of the faith found in scripture, we love the ones that exist in distinct good-bad scenarios and roles where everything's really truly black and white. You know, things that we would hear in Sunday school as kids. The reality of it all is more like this. You can't really look at much any story or narrative in the Bible and find that caliber of distinguishment. There are individuals who, while they are near blameless and establish themselves to be incredibly godly people, there are still glaring moments of humanity found in their lifetime. Uh, that while they have a relationship with God and are even being used by God, their high cast arrows still fall to gravity this earthly influence. Um, you know, for example, we have Abraham, who is considered to be a friend of God, and even offers overwhelming hospitality, despite being an undeniable physical pain, because he now bore the marks of the covenant. Uh, Jonathan, that means he's officially UPS. This same man, Abraham, asks his wife to conceal their marriage and their relationship to the Egyptians they're living amongst just to be in efforts of preserving his own life. Another Genesis example we find is Noah. Noah is a man who in faith builds that ark and in doing so preserves himself, his kids, uh, their wives, but at some point after the deluge, whether it be months or even years, it had to take time to grow a garden, we find this man drunk off his rocker, exposed for all the world to see, trying to live life past the watery grave that he bore witness to. This same grab bag scenario exists in the narrative of Jacob and Esau. That same grab bag exists in our stories today. Now, as I said, if your experiences have been anything like mine or similar to mine, the majority of sermons that you'll hear on the Jacob and Esau relationships kind of go something like this. The grand emphasis placed on Jacob is a man who is strictly a mama's boy who swindled his manly man brother Esau out of a birthright. And if that is in fact the case that you've had like mine, you've been cheated of some pretty rich details. Now, that being said, it is 100% understandable to have missed many of the details that would suggest otherwise. Uh, 
Understanding family dynamics found in scripture requires a great, great deal of diligence, especially more so in instances of early Israel in the patriarch line. I mean, if you're like me, many people have a lot of difficulty understanding or reading books that are even near a century old. How much more difficult would it be to understand these stories of recorded events that happened halfway across the world in foreign countries and cultures that are under thousands and thousands of years of dust pinned in Hebrew, Greek, and tiny slivers of Aramaic? So, questions we're going to be tackling on this is, what does it mean to be someone who would dwell in tents? Another question, what would it mean to be a man of the field? And also, it's not very typical for scripture to point out what's for lunch, so what's this deal about the pottage? As I said before, I'm going to be happy to spill the beans on it. So the best place to start in an examination of Jacob and Esau is actually going to be their mother Rebecca's pregnancy. And something that's kind of unique to me, whenever you take a look at the line of the patriarchs, you have Abraham and you have Sarah. Sarah has problems conceiving. In this story, we find Isaac and his wife Rebecca. She has like this 20-year stall period to where she's not able to conceive. And it's so bad to the point, text in Genesis actually says that Isaac went and pleaded on behalf of his wife so she could conceive to have children. And, of course, we have it here and later on where one of Jacob's wives later on, she has problems as well. So, that bit of information is free, right? But, you take a look at Rebecca's pregnancy and her path to motherhood. Uh, Rebecca's pregnancy, and it's like Sarah's. You know, it's difficult for them to conceive. And so much so, as I mentioned, Isaac pleaded to the Lord on behalf of his wife. 20 years later, she's finally expecting, and after these 20 years when she finally conceives, it's not really happily ever after because there's problems within the pregnancy that you'll find in the text. The pregnancy itself wasn't ideal. The text says that the children struggled within her with one another. Genesis 25:23 says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. From there it says that Isaac favored Esau, the man of the field, because of what he put in his mouth, whereas Rebekah favored Jacob, the mild man that dwelled in tents. Now, in medieval Judaism, there is this highly decorated rabbi called Ibn Ezra, and he is very authoritative in history, and a lot of uh, opinions and a lot of um, studies, a lot of people kind of give headway and leeway to what he says. And he actually makes a comment that Rebecca's name actually comes from the word Becca, which means to split. And I don't think that's too far of a reach. And it's interesting because when you think of the patriarch's line in the Bible, it's not some straight linear thing that goes across history. Especially at this point in Israel's history, we find there being a split or division. This is the case where we find not just one child being born in this pregnancy, it's two. So I don't think that's a very far stretch. 
and something that kind of strikes me, it doesn't say really that there are two brothers in her womb, which of course there are, but it says distinguished two nations. Now, as far as whenever Esau was born, he came out red and hairy. Esau means hairy, and the name that you find later on used for Esau is Edom, which that itself uh, is red. Now, a one of the first and favorite word plays I ever came across in the Hebrew was the name of Jacob. And if you read this story of Jacob and Esau, there's an interesting little detail about it to where it says after Esau was born and after Jacob was born, Jacob was putting his hand to the heel of his brother Esau. Now, the word heel in Hebrew is akev. It's the word used here. It's the word used in Genesis 3 about the serpent head being struck by the heel. Um, it's akev. Well, if you take the letter or word yud, because it's both in Hebrew, both mean hand, and you put that hand onto the word akev, just like Jacob put his hand on his brother Esau's heel, you put the yud to a kev and it becomes a whole new word. It becomes a name. It becomes the name Jacob. Jacob and its spelling literally is yud, hand, on the heel. So again, it's one of the first and favorite I discovered and wanted to share that here. Now I want to directly address verse 27. It says, So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents. Now, as I've stated before, just almost every sermon or every lesson that I've ever heard praises Esau for being someone who is strong, skillful. They applaud him for providing for his family as little as that's even ever detailed. But as far as Jacob goes, he's usually ridiculed and considered borderline useless just for the fact he's always within close proximity they teach of his mother and he's a mama's boy. But I want us to examine a couple of things. If you take a look in the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus, especially when he uses the parables, the Mishli, one of the dominant themes that he uses is things of being out in the field, so to speak. And the setting of being out in the field it means things that are in the world, or things that are of the world, or people that are in and of the world. Now, if we could actually take that same application as to Jesus' meanings of being in the field in the New Testament, and span them all the way back to the scrolls of Genesis, Esau would be a picture of a worldly man. Now, even further than that, the rest of the chapter of Genesis 25 provides even deeper details to show his nature, the things that he is actually drawn to. Now, again, remember whenever he was born, what color was he? Scripture will tell you that he was red. Isaac loved Esau because of the things he ate. Later on in the life of Isaac, we will find that he struggles with his vision. Now, when it comes to struggling with his vision, how are we supposed to perceive that? Is it just being a physical handicap, or could that perhaps be something that is a spiritual issue as well? Maybe there could exist a possibility that the physical is a reflection of the inner nature of what Isaac is experiencing. After all, even in what we read earlier, 
to whom was it that God spoke to concerning the children, Isaac or Rebekah? God spoke to Rebekah. Remember that the younger shall serve the older. One's going to be stronger than the other. There's two nations within you. Rebecca, in some ways, is a picture of a lot of us who have somebody inside of us, a, per, a piece of us, somebody who struggles for the things of spiritual and we want to be in the loop and in the mind of covenant ramifications. And then sometimes there exists within us somebody who is worldly, concerned with the things that we eat, concerned with a lot of the things that bring us enjoyment in this world. Hunger. Hunger is a survival mechanism. Appetite? Appetite's just a matter of preference. It's what I want to eat, not hunger, which has to eat. Biblically speaking, it kind of seems oftentimes where there's food, it's a recipe for disaster. Now, as far as dwelling in tents, yeah, that means he was a homeboy, right? Wanted to be with mama all the time? Well, not quite. Dwelling in the tents is actually understood to be an ancient euphemism for somebody that would study their family. Things that would include history, traditions, their covenants to God, their religion, so to speak. It means understanding the whole scope of the family's origins and learning from the elders the way of life. Now, scaling the genealogies and being mindful of everyone's ages... If you're able to do that, being able to see where so-and-so was this age, never he begat so-and-so, that actually unveils a lot of really intriguing details. It actually, uh, it, you find a lot of surprises just doing that. I've, I remember when I worked at the brick plant, I did a lot of that, where I would just sit there and look at the time spans and charts and tables, and you find a lot of crazy things that you just wouldn't see going straight linear and never thinking back, looking back at any of the information. What's uh, one of these surprises? For example, if we are to take that dwelling in the tents is a euphemism for studying covenants and family and history and origins and all of that, while Jacob would have dwelt in the tents and studied, whom would he have studied from? Jacob would have actually studied from Shem. The very same Shem that survived the flood through the ark. Shem was actually alive during two-thirds of Jacob's life almost. And bear in mind, this whole Shem, yeah, he's like ten generations older than Jacob or something crazy. During all of this, this availability of not just Shem and Abraham and all of these other people that Jacob as well as Esau had exposure to, how much did all of this intrigue Esau? It doesn't say anything that he studied from them. Obviously, I can't imagine he wouldn't have known anything, but we see Jacob keeping himself in close proximity to those in the tent, in the house of, so to speak, into more Anglo-Saxon terminology, he was in the house of. And yet we find Esau hunting. The next bit takes, kind of like mentioned before, a little bit of scrubbing to find and it's being mindful of genealogies and lifespans, but it's also being mindful to traditions. Whenever the boys would have been 15 years old, a very prominent figure, not of just their history, 
but of a cornerstone of the whole world when it comes to religion died. Their grandfather, Abraham. Now, in ancient Israel, when somebody would die, there was a tradition that was upheld where they would make a lentil stew. And again, it's not a terribly common occurrence for Scripture to give details on the daily lunch menu, but when it does, all these details, they are like an ore vein waiting to be picked to find these little nuggets and these little jewels that lie underneath. If the understanding and alignment are in harmony, Abraham dies. And Jacob undertakes it upon himself to begin the traditional mourner's meal. Now, in all of these happenings, where do we find Esau? He's outside. He's hunting. At least he's able to do something he enjoys. But even as skillful as he was, verse 29 will go on to say that he became weary. And in verse 30, he asks his brother to feed him with some of this red stew. Now, Art Scroll Publications has this thing called a Kumash, which comes from the number five. It's the first five books of the Bible, and it has a Hebrew, uh, it has an English, and then it has, I think it's an Aramaic commentary inside it as well. I don't really know how to read the Aramaic necessarily, so <laughs> I can't really get information much from it too awful well. I want to read to you what it says in verses 29 and 30. It says, Jacob simmered the stew, and Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, Pour into me now, my mouth, some of this very red stuff, for I am exhausted. He, therefore, is called Edom. Now, remember the description given to him and again when he was born? Red and hairy, Esau and Edom. Here's what the text says um, whenever it says they're very red. A literal reading actually says, give me some of that red red. The reason it says very red, they're just trying to not sound redundant by saying the same word twice. He was born red. He comes in looking for red red. And think about what he does for a living. What is he most well known for? If he's a hunter and as far as hunting goes, there'd have been plenty red that he'd been trailing, considering he would shed the blood of the animals that he killed how you scout them during what would have been the very well have been the meal of mourning he shows up empty-handed complaining of nearly starving to death and as the firstborn he should be taking his position in the family with an incredible sense of urgency yet it's jacob that's in the tents learning covenants from those like abraham shem among the half a dozen to a dozen generations before still being alive. Esau cared so little about the birthright that he is willing to sell it for an undercooked meal that he wanted poured into his mouth. Now, the term for the firstborn blessing, the bakora, it's based on the word barak, which is to bless. And something in closing I want to in, uh, mention that I find interesting and a facet of this word is that every one of the three letters that's comprised of in Hebrew, it's actually based on a doubling, a factor of two. Uh, bet, it's the second letter of the alphabet, so its numeric value is two, a doubling of one. Resh has a value of 200, which is 100 doubled. Kof has a numeric value of 20, which is 10 doubled. 
And to me, just reading the other side of what the Hebrew letters are, seeing them as numbers, it's showing what the concept of blessing and being blessed, what it really is. It's being in partnership with another. It's not alone being out in the field and hunting. It's about being in the tents and recognizing and serving your God and being paired with who God is. Now, while it is true that a firstborn would receive a double portion of everybody else, it didn't come as a no-strings-attached scenario. If you were expecting to take up the mantle of the family, you would get it. The blessing. Because that's what you would do. You would take up that mantle of the family and represent that family. You would become the cornerstone. Everyone wants the paycheck, but nobody wants to work. Some would rather be out hunting or fishing. Some would even follow their appetites of flesh in various ways. As you actually find in the conclusion of chapter 26, which I said we weren't going to get into, we actually find that Esau takes upon himself not just a marriage, but two marriages to two women who bring a lot of grief to the family. If you are someone who is going to be the spearhead and cornerstone of a family, you've got to consider not just a step that you make, you've really got to consider the steps of who you bring into the fold as a family to build a family with. And whenever you see a lot of the chapters moving forward, that's what Jacob's doing before we find these whole things of the 12 tribes. And whenever you see that Jacob here, you know, he wants this birthright, well, guess what? If Esau is treating these things flippantly, Jacob's not going to be willing to sit by and let everything go on and let him bring his family to total disgrace. He would be willing to be the person to take up the mantle. If you take a look at the story of his mother, I've got a teaching about uh, marriage, and one of the things about that teaching in the marriage is showing the true spirit of Rebecca, how she's willing to go up and serve even people that she doesn't even know, people who can't even do her really in her mind, in her estimation, a lot of good. She even has a spirit of servitude within her to where she was going to go take care of some stranger's near dozen animals, had ten camels that she went out and watered till they were completely filled their full. And so we see incorporated in these elements of these individuals some good, some elements of bad. And I know there exists this whole story and almost this spurning of Rebecca and what she makes Jacob do and people spurn Jacob as well but again go back to what the text emphasizes and what the text actually says as well as what we witness later on it wasn't Isaac that God spoke to Isaac was having problems with his vision if he was having problems with his vision physically as I said before that very well may be indicative of him having vision issues in what he was to do and that is why it is so important whenever we recognize our spouses, the power that they wield and the power that they hold and how they can be used by God in ways, good, bad, or you know, indifferent in influences of the world. And so, like I said, that's what we have for Genesis 25. If interest persists, we might go a little bit deeper into the relationship of Jacob and Esau. I was really hoping I wouldn't have an hour-long teaching on this subject, and it looks like we're almost at 24 minutes. So, as always, thank you for your time.
Hope this is a blessing to you and be blessed.